0: Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, October 22nd. In today's news, the CDC expands its definition of who is considered a close contact for coronavirus purposes. The maker of OxyContin pleads guilty to three felonies as part of an $8.3 billion settlement. And Barack Obama makes his 2020 debut on the campaign trail With a blazing critique of his successor. But first, the big idea. President Trump and his advisors have repeatedly discussed whether to fire FBI Director Chris Wray after the election. It is a scenario that also could imperil the tenure of Attorney General Bill Barr as the president grows increasingly frustrated that federal law enforcement has not delivered his campaign the kind of last minute boost the FBI provided in 2016. Devlin Barrett and Josh Dossi report that the conversations among the president and senior aides stem in part from their disappointment that Ray in particular, but Barr as well, have not done what Trump had hoped, which is to claim or even hint that Joe Biden, his son Hunter Biden, or other Biden associates are under investigation. In the campaign's closing weeks, the president has intensified public calls for jailing his challenger, much as he did for Hillary Clinton. Trump has taken to repeatedly calling Biden a criminal, not just without evidence, but also without even articulating what laws he believes the former vice president might have broken. People familiar with the discussions tell Devlin and Josh that Trump wants official action similar to the announcement made 11 days before the last presidential election by then-FBI director Jim Comey who informed Congress that he'd reopened the investigation into Clinton's use of a private email server after new messages had been found on Anthony Weiner's laptop. Trump was explicit that this is exactly what he wants during a Tuesday interview on Fox News. He referred to information about Hunter Biden recently touted by his own private lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, based on the contents of a laptop computer purportedly belonging to the former vice president's son. Senior FBI officials have refused to play this political game and say they're wary of repeating moves that were sharply criticized as unfair and inappropriate by the Justice Department's own inspector general after the election. Trump considers Ray one of his worst personnel picks. White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows has also sharply criticized Ray during internal discussions, as has another top advisor, his golf caddy turned deputy chief of staff Dan Scavino. Meadows has expressed frustration that Ray will not declassify more documents related to the FBI's 2016 probe of Russia's election interference, but federal law enforcement officials say they have not been told specifically what documents Meadows even wants to be declassified. The attorney general has been drawn into some of these disputes as the president has complained that a hoped-for report from Connecticut U.S. attorney John Durham, who's scrutinizing the origins of the Russia investigation, is not expected to surface until after election day. People who have been in the room with the president tell Josh that Trump has been so fixated on the Durham report that he would turn up the volume on the television whenever segments about the investigation would air. Trump has told allies that he believed Barr would deliver, quote, scalps in the form of Durham's report. And he's used profanity to express his anger that the law enforcement apparatus is not doing more to help him out. FBI sources tell Devlin that Ray has decided to largely stay away from meetings with the president out of an abundance of caution. As this palace intrigue continues, U.S. officials last night accused Iran of targeting American voters with faked but menacing emails and warned that both Iran and Russia had obtained voter data that could be used to endanger the upcoming election. The disclosure by Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe at a hastily called news conference marked the first time this election cycle that a foreign adversary has been formally accused of targeting specific voters in a bid to undermine Democratic confidence four years after Russian online operations targeted the 2016 vote. The claim that Iran was behind the email operation, which came into view on Tuesday as Democrats in several states reported receiving emails demanding that they vote for Trump or else, was leveled without any specific evidence. The emails claimed to be from a pro-Trump group called the Proud Boys. That's the group Trump told to stand by during the first debate. But evidence had mounted that they were, in fact, the work of another hidden actor taking advantage of weak security on the server that had been controlled by the Proud Boys. Other U.S. officials stressed to our intelligence reporter, Ellen Nakashima, that Russia still remains the major threat to the 2020 election. Ellen and Craig Timberg have a great story in our paper today that looks at some of the ways that U.S. agencies are mounting a major effort to thwart Russian interference. For months now, American military cyber operators aided by intelligence from the NSA have been targeting Russian spies to disrupt their plans by repeatedly knocking them off the Internet confusing their planners and depriving them of their hacking tools. The goal is to prevent them from attacking U.S. voting systems. A vital missing ingredient, however, has been messaging from the top, such as a declaration from Trump himself that the United States will not tolerate the Kremlin's efforts to interfere in the election. And disinformation experts say that Trump has reinforced Russian President Vladimir Putin's attempts to stoke American social divisions with his inflammatory and unfounded remarks about racial and cultural issues, the coronavirus, and the security of voting by mail. But officials on the inside say that even if Trump's not publicly voicing support for agency efforts, he's not impeding them. And the NSA, FBI, and DHS have made securing our election a top priority. That's good news in weirder news, Giuliani was duped by Borat. In a surprise sequel to the 2006 movie, the actress playing Borat's daughter poses as a conservative television journalist and interviews Giuliani at a hotel about Trump's response to the coronavirus. Then, this is all caught on hidden camera, she invites him to join her for a drink afterward, and once she removes his microphone, he lies down on the bed in her hotel room and sticks his hand down his pants. Giuliani called the video a complete fabrication and said he was just tucking in his shirt after taking off the recording equipment. Just as Giuliani reaches into his trousers as he's lying flat on the bed, a bikini-clad Borat arrives and exclaims, she's 15! In fact, the actress is 24. Of course, Sasha Baron Cohen's antics rarely fly under the radar these days, and a report had emerged in July that Giuliani called the police on the comedian after he stormed into the hotel room wearing a wig and pink bikini to stop the interview. But nobody, probably including Giuliani, even after he identified Cohen, knew that hidden camera footage of the incident would wind up in the movie, which will be available to stream starting Friday on Amazon Prime. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one. The CDC had previously defined a close contact as someone who spent at least 15 consecutive minutes within six feet of someone who had a confirmed case of the virus. New guidance issued yesterday afternoon now defines a close contact as someone who was within six feet of an infected individual for a total of 15 minutes or more over a 24-hour period. The guidance is what health departments rely on to conduct contact tracing. And the update comes as the US continues to see cases surge with increases in nearly 75% of the country. Lena Sun reports that the guidance about transmission of the coronavirus has been discussed by CDC scientists for several weeks, but what prompted them to go public was new unsettling evidence in an internal report. CDC investigators discovered that a 20-year-old prison employee in Vermont got the coronavirus during an eight-hour shift in which she had 22 brief interactions for a total of 17 minutes with prisoners who later tested positive. They concluded that an asymptomatic detainee transmitted the virus during those brief encounters. There are troubling reminders like this almost every hour of just how contagious this virus is. Consider what's happening in La Crosse, Wisconsin, great town just an hour from where my mom lives, But it's become a hellscape since the city's three colleges reopened. Young people packed the small towns, bars and restaurants in September, crowding closely and in most cases not wearing masks. A month later, La Crosse has endured a wildfire of new infections that first appeared predominantly in the student age population, but then spread into the rest of the community and ultimately ravaged elderly residents who had previously managed to avoid the worst of the pandemic. La Crosse's nursing homes had lost no one to COVID until the kids came back. Now 19 people who live in long-term care facilities who are over 60 are dead. The virus has also spread like wildfire inside the only two 911 call centers on the entire island of Puerto Rico. After several employees got COVID, the Commonwealth shut down their 911 call centers. If you call 911 in Puerto Rico right now, you get a recording telling you to call the island's emergency management agency for help. But if you call the number that they give you for the emergency management agency, you get a recording telling you to call nine one one. What a Kafkaesque nightmare! Finally, as it relates to the virus, a new study out this morning from a Harvard geneticist, Stephen Elledge, attempts to quantify the staggering scale of our loss. Professor Elledge tabulated the ages of Americans known to have died of the virus, and then he added up the number of years they might have lived had they reached a typical life expectancy. He found that the coronavirus has claimed 2.5 million years of potential life in the United States. 2.5 million years. Number two. The Justice Department announced a historic $8.3 billion settlement yesterday with Purdue Pharma, the maker of the painkiller OxyContin. This caps a long-running federal investigation into the company that, for critics, became a leading symbol of corporations profiting from America's deadly addiction to opioid painkillers. Purdue Pharma agreed to plead guilty to three felonies as part of the deal, but state authorities and families who have lost loved ones to its products complain that the Justice Department's terms, which include a $225 million civil settlement with the billionaire Sackler family that once ran the firm, are far too lenient. Administrations often seek to resolve significant cases as they near the possible end of their time in office, and with Election Day drawing near, the Trump administration is pushed to finalize a number of such matters this month. A multi-billion-dollar settlement with Goldman Sachs over alleged financial misdeeds is expected to be announced later this week. Number three, Barack Obama held a drive-in rally last night outside the stadium where the Philadelphia Eagles play. He spent about half an hour lacing into Trump. He really let it rip. The former president said that if Trump could not protect himself from COVID, he's certainly not going to be able to protect the rest of us. Obama said Biden is not going to screw up testing. He's not going to call scientists idiots, and he's not going to hold a super spreader event at the White House. Obama attacked Trump for his embrace of conspiracy theories, including his recent retweet of a conspiracy theory that Osama bin Laden was not really killed. He also contrasted Trump's economic record with his own and spoke at length about the president's attempts to gut Obamacare. Obama also implored Democrats to ignore the polls showing Biden ahead and to avoid the complacency that he says cost Hillary Clinton the election in 2016. Obama's appearance in a state Trump won by less than one percent last time showed how important the keystone state's 20 electoral votes are in this race. It often has felt like the whole presidential contest can be boiled down to a Pennsylvania Senate race. Trump stumped on Tuesday night in Erie. That's an area where Obama won in 2008 and 2012, but that flipped to Trump in 2016. During a speech in Philly, Obama made hay of Trump's secret Chinese bank account, which I told you about yesterday. He said, quote, can you imagine if I had a secret Chinese bank account when I was running for reelection? You think Fox News might have been a little concerned about that? They would have called me Beijing Barry. Biden didn't attend the rally. The former vice president was hunkered down at his home about half an hour away in Wilmington, Delaware, preparing for the final debate tonight against Trump in Nashville. The debate starts at 9 p.m. Eastern. If you don't want to watch Talking Heads on cable TV, I'd encourage you to check out our free live stream at WashingtonPost.com or at YouTube.com slash Washington Post. I will be in our newsroom along with my colleague Libby Casey for a special preview show that will air for the hour before the debate, and then we'll reconvene for analysis during the hour afterward. And of course, I'll be right here again tomorrow morning with my take on the debate. And that's all for today, October 22nd. I'm James Homan. Stay safe. Thanks for listening. The Daily 202 is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and the new podcast Caring for Tomorrow. I'm Joan London, the host of the series. Please join us as we explore the challenges and solutions that are defining the future of healthcare. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.